Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Anna Marshall the CIO for the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, where she oversees a $13 billion pool of capital. Anna joined Hewlett 18 years ago after spending the same amount of time as a direct investor. She was a past guest in 2019 describing her approach, and that conversation is replayed in the feed. We caught up to discuss what's on Anna's mind going into the new year. We cover inflation, private equity secondaries, liquidity management, China, emerging markets, and ESG. We close discussing where Anna is looking around corners, what's filling her basket of worries, and her plan for the next five years. 
Before we get going, we've just released the last episode of Season 1 of Private Equity Deals on the Private Equity Deals separate podcast feed. If you're an allocator, private equity manager, banker, or student of deals and businesses, this show is for you. Search for Private Equity Deals on your podcast player and subscribe. As soon as you do, you'll get access to eight conversations with leading brand name private equity funds discussing an individual deal and the way they practice their craft. The last one is a gem from CDNR, describing a business with aspects of venture, buyout, and growth equity investing alongside their operating partner model. Please enjoy my conversation with Anna Marshall. Anna, great to see you. Great to see you too, Ted. I thought we should dive right in on whatever you are finding most topical on the investment side of the business. Everybody loves to become an armchair economist. So, you know, we can skip the armchair economics if you'd like, since I don't think any of us have a crystal ball, including the Fed. So we can all stop there. Well, before we fully stop there, let's just talk about inflation. Okay. Not a projection, okay. but given the potential for a very different macroeconomic environment going forward for a number of years. How do you integrate that into your thinking about your portfolio? I think one thing that's super helpful is to try to forget the last 14 years and try to clear your mind of anything that you thought was a rule of investing in the last 14 years. Because what we're really doing is going back to a world that existed starting in sort of 1991, 1992, through up into the crisis. So it was more of a normalized economy. You had inflation, you had rates at 4%, you had mortgage rates at 7%. Like the world didn't stop. No one like fell out of their chair. It was fine. We all lived fine. We all invested. We all made money in the 90s. We just have to forget the paradigm that we lived in in the last 14 years is completely artificial. And I think once you erase that, you start taking it with a lot more call. What are some of those rules that you've told your team need to be unlearned or forgotten? This whole concept of the math works for any deal at any valuation because the cost of capital is near zero. I think that is probably the most pernicious thing that was learned by a generation of investors. The fact that you can invest internationally without ever thinking about FX risk and the cost of hedging and how that affects your expected return of an asset. The fact that illiquidity premium had been completely obliterated as more and more money poured into private markets and how you need to demand an illiquidity premium to really be able to construct a healthy portfolio long term. So those are just three to take as lessons that were great. They were fabulous. They made lots of money for the institutions that we all represent. I mean, it was a great time to really grow our endowments. And we were then able to do a lot of really good work. I mean, we doubled the grant budget of this organization really in the last six years. All of our institutions and the world was able to be a better place. It wasn't wasted. But for us to be good stewards of capital, I think we just have to unlearn some of those. Are there actions you're taking over the next couple of years on your portfolio based on the belief that we have to unlearn some of these things? So we're having a lot more discussions with our managers about 
how are they adjusting their cost of capital? How are they adjusting their valuations? How are they focusing on free cash flow? What are they doing in terms of DCFs? In case of inflation, how are they putting in price increases? How are they growing their top lines? How are they adjusting their budgets? Because if you're a buyout manager, you bought a company, even if you thought you were going to get growth of whatever, 8 10% out of a company, but you have 5% inflation or 7% inflation, well, 8% doesn't really look that exciting anymore. That really is 3% real. So how are they adjusting their expectations? And then how are they making sure that once the most of buyout has floating rate debt? Like, can these companies pay their bills when their interest bill is now 2x. So how about you focus instead of on EBITDA in case you focus on, you know, cash flow before the I doubled. And I think for a lot of the generation and of the kids doing the models, they just haven't lived through that. So it's it's about asking them what they're doing. I'm really curious to ask you what the range of responses you're hearing to that set of questions. Everything from hope that nothing is going to change because by this time next year, the rates will be coming down again, and therefore the cost of financing won't be an issue. That's one end of the spectrum. There's the other end of the spectrum that basically says, well, we're all pencils down because nothing works at these prices anyway. And we're just making sure that our companies can pay their interest bill first and foremost. And everybody from doing spreadsheets at work is now sitting in portfolio companies, helping our portfolio company management teams really sharpen their pencils pay their bills, pay their interest bill, and make it through. So that's the other end of the spectrum. When you were writing your next set of checks, somewhere in that spectrum, you have to decide what resonates most for you. So where are you fitting in on on that range? I think you know where I would fit in (laughs) on that range. I'm a big believer that the people who we trust with our capital need to be pencils down and really working with the portfolio companies We have had five to seven years of massive amounts of capital going into buying private firms and taking companies private. And it's time for everybody on the field to really go work those companies. This is not about playing a valuation flip game. In your portfolio, everyone's made investments in the private markets, whether it's venture or buyouts, that have done really, really well for a while, at least until recently. How do you think about assessing your allocations to these areas? when you feel like things have gotten a little frothy? I'm unusual in that we use secondaries as part of our portfolio management process. When you see a market that is getting frothy, and again, we make commitments to our managers and then they have three years to invest funds or four years. We were seeing the velocity increase so much that we started getting concerned. When you start seeing that, you start seeing your portfolio construction get distorted. So one way to do that is to actively manage your private portfolio. In doing so, what you do is you start looking at secondary markets. And there is an art to doing secondaries. You can't just throw things out there. You can't just say, oh, it's these five guys I don't like. I'm going to throw those guys out of the portfolio. You really do try to construct a portfolio that somebody else will find useful. And that also... When you take it out of your portfolio, you haven't completely left a hole in your portfolio construction of your own buyout portfolio. I speak about buyout. We've done it in real estate. We've done it in natural resources. There's nothing wrong with the managers themselves. It's rarely performance related. You can't just sell your duds. That never works in a secondary. It is 
about whether and how that fits into our portfolio strategy. I'd love to dive in a little more on this because it's it's a different concept than many in this space, right? It is. Let me add the materiality of it. We don't do secondaries every year. We do secondaries when the strategy calls for it. For example, the classic case is you have a change in your asset class director. Every asset class director has to be able to walk in day one and own a certain amount of their portfolio. And then they might find that the strategy in which they want to take the portfolio is different. They want to go down market. They want to go up market. They want to go international. They want to not be international. Whatever it may be, as a CIO, you have to respect that there is an actual asset class director, managing director, that you want to hold accountable for delivering on a strategy. So as a CIO, you have to be able to give them the tools to be able to do that. And the only way to do that is to carve out part of it as a secondary sale and then be able to reinvest that and provide room in the allocation on the portfolio-wide basis for them to go do what they want to do. So that's sort of the cookie-cutter first way of doing it. The less preferred way of doing it would be if you find yourself overcommitted. Now, I think everybody who is a CIO today that was a CIO in 2008 learned their lesson well. So fortunately, I don't think we have a lot of people that are overcommitted. But usually if you get overcommitted to a certain asset class, then that would be the other reason to sort of call your portfolio and try to get your exposure down. And the third one is simply for risk management, which is from a risk allocation, your private assets are taking so much more of your risk budget that as liquidity constraints come into your portfolio, and let's say your public assets sell down, you find yourself ever higher in the risk spectrum on your portfolio. And so one of the ways that you can look at this is to call the allocation and say, okay, we'll keep committing because usually you don't want to stop committing, but we can take $100 million, $200 million here or there. Secondary sales can't really happen in a world for like under $100 million. They don't really go out in more than bulks of like $200, $300 million. And so you try to time the market. You try to be more clever than most, but it's not a bulk of our portfolio we're selling. We're just trying to manage around the edges with these secondary sales. So you almost have three different scenarios. The first is this internally generated because there's a change in someone on your team. The second is, say, a scenario where there's a public market sell-off increasing the allocation of private markets. And the third are when private markets have done really well, and therefore people have gotten excited and the allocations are higher. So two are market-driven and the first is a little more internal-driven. Are there differences in how you think about how to go about the secondary sale in those different scenarios? If it's a risk focus, then you almost have to be really quick-footed because by the time you're sensing that you are going to have a risk issue, then you're going to be too late. Because it does take time to pull together a secondary. I mean, it takes your internal team to pull together all the stuff. You need to hire a banker. You need to shop it out there. I mean, you need to talk to all your GPs. You have to have really close relationships with your GPs. So this is where the concentrated portfolio that I have really is helpful because we do have those working relationships with the GPs where we can have the conversation to explain to them why we're doing it. The conversation, for example, at the beginning of this year was, we think the Fed's going to raise rates. We think we're going to find ourselves with a declining equity market. 
we think we're going to find ourselves over our skis because your returns have been so great. Like my NAV has gone up so much. I'm finding myself beyond where I need, I want to be in risk. I need to cut risk. This is part of the way I'm cutting risk. Please understand that this is a risk management thing. It's not you. Like we need to manage our fiduciary duty. And so you just need to be handling it in a more proactive way. And that gives you the room to be able to continue to commit. Because I think not being able to commit because you are already over your NAV is actually a really big mistake because some of the best funds are actually invested during down years. And so you don't want to miss those years. So there are a lot of people that wouldn't broach their GPs because they probably live in perpetual fear that they want to make sure they're in the next fund. What have you found that receptivity to be over time when you've had these conversations across the board in your portfolio? They usually come after years of a really strong relationship and transparency. We tend to be super transparent. And I think also the fact that we have such a stable team. I've been here for 18 years. The GPs know me and they know my word and they know that if I'm telling them that I need to bring down risk or that I have a new director who wants to see things a little bit different, I think they understand that. We're constantly evaluating them on how they manage their firms and their teams. And I think they have a healthy respect for knowing that I also have to manage this place and the portfolio. You mentioned at the onset that there's a bit of an art to putting together this secondary sale so that it's attractive and works for someone who's buying it. What are some of the features of what's worked for you in that regard? Usually if it's partnerships that a lot of people know, where people don't have to do an extraordinary amount of work in order to understand the assets. At the end of the day, yes, they're firms and they're funds, but they're a bunch of assets. So people need to be able to underwrite the assets. And the easier you make it, the better it is. That doesn't mean that's all you sell. I mean, you can sell other things. But I would say we're in the fortunate position where we haven't had that many funds that don't stand up for themselves. In a different situation with a new portfolio, I probably would have been the buyer of a lot of our portfolios that I sell. I just happen to have a very mature portfolio. In the optimal sale that you've done, how much lead time does it take to go from the idea that we need to trim through a secondary to actually executing? From the idea of portfolio management to actual getting together a list is probably a month and then a month for the banker. And then depending on the workflow of these bankers and when they can do it, and then the workflow of the buyer universe. And I mean, the buyer universe has grown tremendously in the last 15 years, but even they have a cadence as to when they're super busy and when they're not, and when they can take a look at a new deal or not. So you just have to be mindful of that. And so start to finish, how long does it take? So the fastest I think we've ever moved is six weeks, eight weeks. The longest has been five months. Are there other ways that you've thought about liquidity management across a multi-manager portfolio outside of the traditional way of thinking about investing in and redeeming for managers and making commitments and getting distributions? The one thing that we all forget is that cash has a great deal of value. And the more illiquid your portfolio, the more value your cash port has. At least now you have a yield on your cash, which is a huge benefit now, but it has option value. 
learning the lessons from away. Many of us have credit lines in place to be able to fund the granting parts of the organizations, but you can't use credit lines to lean into a dislocation for lots of tax reasons. If you think a dislocation is coming, you need to have cash to be able to even get a chance at that. And I just think it helps to bridge the cash flow because cash flows are episodic. We all solved these beautiful cash flow models, but we've all lived through periods where we get distributions well in excess of those models. And then we've lived through periods where you're just like, oh my God, where the hell am I going to get my next distribution? In organizations like a foundation that don't have incoming cash flows, that means that my cash flow for granting and expenses for next year, if I don't get anything from the private portfolio, it has to come out of the public portfolio. And so they're not sort of paying in their fair share of outflows. So you have to use cash as that sort of buffer to help bridge the cash flows, or you're going to distort your actual asset allocation much worse. What have you found is the appropriate steady state allocation to cash? We have probably about 50% of the portfolio in, in illiquids. So we have about, I would say, 4 to 5% in cash. Some so that we can bridge what should be the contribution to pay out and some so we can lean into dislocations. And will you flex that 4 to 5% higher if you sense that there may be dislocation opportunities on the come? I tend to not be that tactical. I mean, I'm moving around a super tanker here, but it really comes to trying to preserve the intended asset allocation more so than providing the opportunity. As it turns out, because usually the dislocation comes in public markets first, you're going to not want to sell your public assets in order to fund payout as it is. And so the more you can defend even your existing allocations, I think is a really good use of cash. So let's turn to where you're seeing opportunities. So far, not much. The private markets have done what they do, which is they take forever to actually get reality checks. For the most part, the marks have been way slower and way less than I would have expected, even for this stage, given the increase in the cost of capital. So I think those are still to come. So I don't think there's any bargains to be had. And I think that's why you've just gotten paralyzed markets. Even if your cash flow model is wrong on distributions, you're probably not going to get any capital calls anyway, because no one can really fund anything in the debt markets. So for the time being, it won't be a huge squeeze for people because there won't be any capital calls. You still have the period of sort of adjusting down valuations that hasn't happened. I would say the opportunity set to come will be good. That has implications for the actual values of everything that was bought in the last five years. But <laughs> that's still all to be played out in the future. Public markets, the rotation seems to be, I don't know that it's almost complete, but it has been fairly harsh. And so do I feel like we can jump in and take advantage? I think there will still be people who need to source their payouts and their capital calls from public markets. I mean, you still have institutional investors that whether they reallocate back to fixed income or they have to fund cash flows or they have to fund private market capital calls without there being the benefit of distributions, I still think that hits your public credit and public equity markets. 
So you've spent a lot of time in your life in emerging markets. It does feel like it's become a tale of two, China and the rest of the world. We'd love to get your take on both. So why don't we start with China? The cyclical China bounce as it reopens, I think, is well-deserved, and I hope it lasts. The secular tension with the U.S. just hasn't been fixed, and I don't think there is any intent on the U.S. side to fix it. So I think it is a different market from the market that we so enjoyed. I mean, when we started in 2004 investing in China, we had a wonderful run for 15 years and great global companies were created. And I think more global companies will be created in sectors that the government really wants to sponsor. I think it will become ever more challenging for us to be able to benefit from that, just simply because from the U.S. side, there is greater consensus of whether it's containment, whether it's competitive edge, whatever it is that we want to call it as policy in the United States. So how have you approached your existing investments over there? Much of our exposure is in illiquid venture. So there isn't much I can do to the process. We only have two venture firms there. Our two venture firms there are actually quite entrenched in building the self-resilient sectors that the government wants. So I think they will create really interesting companies. So we're quite excited about that. It's sort of like the FX risk. When you've been investing without thinking of geopolitical risk as one of your main things, you then have to add it into your underwriting. So that just makes the hurdle rate higher for a China investment. And when at the same time, your U.S. investments start to correct in the U.S. and the private markets, then that will look more interesting without taking that FX or geopolitical risk. We all have to put the money to work. It's a relative game. I guess the tough question that then has to get asked is when these two firms go to raise their next fund, do you feel differently about the investability of those firms in China, given what's happened over the last year? So fortunately, they had just raised. And so we have three years to figure out what happens in the U.S.-China relationship and whether some of these structural um, shifts can, can actually be broken, even if it's just getting more working groups going between the two countries. That's an improvement. So there are things to watch out for more than just the headlines over the next three years that we'll be focused on. Have you thought about public markets in China? From a relative valuation, they're the cheapest they've ever been. Part of the thesis in China was always about relative growth. Once you break that, do you then get a market similar to sort of Korea, where it's a market that is always cheap. It just goes through stages of relative cheapness to relative less cheap. And you can trade those markets super well. In the 90s, we used to do it all the time. And those are the markets where you look at a trading range. The companies are doing fine. You can track the companies. They're still learning. So you can actually have a fairly high conviction in the valuations as being real and then trade it what I call from knees to shoulders. So let's say if Korea was a four to eight times market, you trade four and a half or five to seven, and you just play that game. It's a different market, to be honest, than what we've expected in the last 15 years. So are you participating today? 
No, I'm not participating today because that takes a very different type of portfolio manager. And it's hard to understand if a generation of investors that has invested in a different type of market can actually play that kind of a market. So we have to figure that out. I mean, we have one or two public managers, and that's what we're just waiting to see how it is that they adjust their strategies to this new environment. What are you seeing in emerging markets outside of China? I would say Singapore is trying to position itself as sort of the Switzerland of Asia. There's a lot of excitement about Indonesia and Malaysia. I am probably more skeptical than most, given that I invested in those markets in the 90s. And therefore, I get the supply chain argument and the moving of supply chain to Indonesia and Vietnam. I think we all forget that Vietnam is also a communist country. And it also doesn't scale very well. And the Chinese ran into scalability problems on wages pretty fast. So I think of all, always of would I put a plant there? If I were a board member, what would it take for me to decide where I would put my next plant, my manufacturing center? And you have a lot of geopolitical concerns still. You have a new government in Malaysia. You've got only two years of the current governance in Indonesia. And so it's really difficult to make 10-year capital decisions on manufacturing plants and the ensuing supply chain that has to follow you into those manufacturing plants. Because remember, when you build a manufacturing plant, you have to have all the other little subcomponent people also move with you. It's a lot to ask, which is why the supply chain trend has been slower than people, I think, expected. So I'm a little bit more skeptical than most on Asia. Latin America, Brazil has a new president. We'll see what his finance minister comes up with. It's a really hard problem they have because the last time he was in power, he benefited from a huge tailwind of Chinese demand for both soybean and iron ore. And this time he doesn't. It still is a really large country. And so it has scale but it doesn't really have a workforce that can take a lot of the manufacturing capacity, supply chain kind of stuff. India, you know, oil continues to be the you know, sort of their Achilles heel as far as their current account. And we're seeing the reserves come out and it still is a market with a ton of corruption. And so it's from an ease of doing business for foreign manufacturers is still is a really hard thing. We don't have any exposure on a public market basis to any of these markets. Let's see, some other topical things that have come up a lot this year. Your take on ESG. ESG was great, then ESG was greenwashing, then ESG is trash. It's like a religion that is trying to be debunked. It's really emotional too for boards, for investment committees, less so I would say for the CIOs, but we have to implement whatever it is our governance bodies actually want us to do. And so that's sort of where the rubber meets the road for ESG for us. I would say there's two paths. There's the path of only go and invest in like the ESG good people, like the companies that have the good ratings, the companies that are shown and proven to be on someone's list that they are actually doing the right thing. Or you can go down the path of change in ESG. So why don't you go down the path of it's the rate of change that matters? And maybe that's the way you're going to create value. So I've seen those two divergent paths. The how to capture the ones changing 
their ESG ratings requires a lot of fundamental analysis. But I think more than anything else, I think the confusion in the corporate sector on what to measure, how to measure it, what's going to be compliance approved, and the fear, I would say, that exists in the legal department of every S&P 500 company that you will, in two years' time or whenever the SEC decrees it, you will now have to disclose your GHG emissions, scope one, scope two, scope three, in a world where measuring them and actually assessing them, let alone verifying them, is a fuzzy science. And so I think we're kind of putting the cart before the horse, but I think we'll eventually get there. But I think having that as a prism by which to invest is fraught. We don't think this will stop at public equity, by the way. We think it'll go through to all SEC registered investment firms because that is the intent of the SEC in all of their working papers. So we're working with our private equity firms on 100-day plans for any industrial buyout, really tracking where are their emissions coming from? Do you have the software? Can you put the software into all the portfolio companies? Can you aggregate it and show viable metrics of improvement? So working with them a little bit on that, on just trying to be a neutral party, because there are at least two dozen software companies, startups, all saying that they can measure. Every consulting firm is trying to get its business up and running, but everybody's new at this. And GHG emissions are the harder thing to see. How do you verify evidence-based approach and report it in an SEC financial statement? How does PwC basically sign off on your financials that include this as part of a footnote without being able to verify it? It's going to be complicated. And the estimated cost of compliance for scope one, scope two, and scope three is expected to exceed Sarbanes-Oxley. And Sarbanes-Oxley was a bear. Have you glommed on to any particular, either one of these startups or set of measurements that you're seeing more broadly adopted than others thus far? No. Everyone is looking at the decision made by the buyout firm. And so it has to be something that's adaptable as a dashboard across all their portfolio companies. And so there isn't anything that I've seen so far. And do you have a bias towards the good ESG companies versus the getting better companies? I think the getting better is what we should be aiming for. <laughs> I mean, the point is, isn't to reward the ones that already are good. A lot of the point of our granting uh, dollars is to improve conditions. And so I think from a philosophical perspective as part of Hewlett Foundation, I'm more in the camp of let's provide good incentives for people to go down the path to improve their ESG ratings. What I try to convince the CEOs of portfolio companies is that you will have a lower cost of capital and you will have a higher exit multiple. So the incentive structure should be aligned to doing the right thing, not because it's the right thing, but because you're going to make more money. So how about the S in ESG, which is even harder at times to measure that for actionable outcome and align economic incentives? 
The S is something that many people track because Hewlett spends an extraordinary amount of its funding on climate change. That and governance are far more important to us than the S. Not that the S isn't important, but if you look at the ratings of, let's say, female participation in your employee base, if you're a biotech investor, you're going to have a very low rating. And even if you improve it by 100%, you're still going to be in a very low rating. If you're an advertising company where you probably have a significant amount of women in your firm, you're always going to look good even if you've never made an advance. Just like the E still needs work, I think the S, what exactly are we measuring? Are we measuring decision makers? Are we measuring employee workforce? I would like to think that we are measuring decision makers because what you really want in the S is to have more senior professionals, either people of color or women, but in many industries that will take decades. And so to give a score today, I don't know that it means much. One of the things we talked about, I guess a couple of years ago when you were on the show was seeing around corners. And I would love to hear what it is that you're seeing. Seeing around corners is, again, the, the art of the guess. I would say that it's going back to the basics. It's going back to the playbook that worked. It's more like a back to the future than seeing around corners. <laughs> going back and understanding what worked in the 90s and sort of think of it as 1991 to 2006. What worked there? It's not the exact same thing. But what is different today? What different monetary tools? What different leverage levels? What flexibility there is? That's one of the things that we're really spending a lot of time on and sort of the analog versus the differences and is there something we can learn? We're also doing a lot of what has really changed. So standing today versus where we were five years ago, how has the way we interact with things changed? It's bizarre if you have a conversation today about your behavior in April of 2020. You feel like that was somebody else living a different life in a different world. And so I think sometimes when you're in it, you don't remove yourself enough to be able to zoom out and really understand quantum changes. And I think we're spending a lot of time on quantum changes on how it is we interact with the world and the ramifications that that could have on the way we spend money, invest money, and that eventually make money doing so. So as you're thinking about those potential higher level changes, what's changed and maybe improved in the way you go about your investment process over the last couple of years? What's improved is I think we take both a very holistic approach and a very bottom-up approach. We have had the fortune of concentrating our portfolio with some of the best thinkers in the world. And so we invite them in. We literally say, okay, here's five topics. Come and tell us where you think you know, these five topics will be. Let us ask questions. Totally unprompted. Because we know that eventually, whatever they're thinking will be reflected in their portfolios. So it's going to end up in our portfolio anyway. It's just, do we have enough diverse thinking? If all of a sudden we're having conversations with 10 managers and 10 managers are telling us exactly the same thing, 
we know, A, everybody's already including that in their portfolios. So the ability to make money from that is not that great. And then also we have a risk that if they're wrong, we've got a lot of the portfolio writing on the same things. And that's a risk. So it's a risk management tool and it's a future positioning tool. So it's, it works both ways. So when you're sitting down with your managers today, what are those five topics you're asking them about? Oh, we ask them really random stuff. I mean, we don't want to lead the witness. Like we ask people who are in buyout about crypto. We ask crypto guys about industrials. We ask public people about privates. Everyone has an opinion about somebody else's asset class, for sure. And so we tend to get them rolling on that. We're always looking for the highest return on a risk-adjusted basis. And so trying to really calibrate that risk is important, especially in a foundation that doesn't have any new sources of income other than what we can compound over time. So when you distill those conversations, what is filling your basket of worries today? <laughs> my wow, you went back to my basket of worries. <laughs> uh, I would say my basket of worries, number one, is that our NAVs don't really reflect what's the reality of the situation is. And I understand the reasons why the buyout and venture and all the private firms, they're being careful with the marks, but all of the clients are creating budgets, whether you're a pension plan, an endowment or a foundation, you're creating a budget with your treasurer or your CFO that you know deep in your heart represents an NAV that is too high. And so the potential cash flow and the potential gain from a base NAV that isn't actually correct is a real danger because you're basically overspending in a sense until values adjust. And I would say that's my biggest worry. Our job is to compound endowment wealth for generations to come to do good. And I feel like we're eating to these endowments on a real basis, let alone the inflation hit. So that would be my biggest of my basket of worries, but I can't do anything about it. I can worry, but I can't really move it. What else is filling up that basket? I think the other basket of worries is that we now have to include FX and geopolitical risk in every single investment decision we make. I think it was a gift that for 15 years, we didn't have to do that. But, you know, these costs are real and that and the cost of financing will just bring us down to the expected returns of asset classes that we all put into our models that we know are the true ones, but we've just lived in a beautiful nirvana for a really long time. So when you assimilate that, what is comprising as we turn towards the end of the year into a new year, your five-year plan? My five-year plan. Uh, well, my five-year plan is to make sure that this team and the team at our managers understand inflation accounting, because even 5% inflation, 4% inflation, 3% inflation makes an impact, especially in a world where growth is going to be lower than it was in the 90s. That's one of the biggest differences between now and the 1990s is that, yeah, you could have 3% inflation and 4% rates, but you also had 3 to 4% growth. And right now, we're going to struggle to get that. It's a how do I prepare this team to be the best athletes on the field, to be the best partners to our partners and really get it? And how about you personally on your five-year plan? 
I'm still going to be here five years from now <laughs> trying to get, you know, the trying to compound the wealth that we were fortunate to inherit and continue to support this organization in doing its great work. I mean, I think everybody on the team is committed to that and committed to the compounding. We understand how much of a privilege it is actually to be able to do what we love, which is investing, and be able to do it for a mission-oriented organization. It is the best job in the world. All right, Anna, I have a few closing questions that are new from the last time we did it at this point. Oh, look at you. Okay. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Chris Hahn and Lei Zhang. And why? Because Chris taught me the value of there is no detail that is too much of a detail. You've got to know things inside out, backwards, forwards, or you're never going to have conviction. And you have to leave your portfolio managers be and not second guess them. And he and I have had a two decades long relationship. So we've learned this together. Lay, because he really taught me that you should not waste your time with anything but quality people and quality firms. And the ability to be able to not waste time and to be super efficient with where I network, how I am a partner to people and being present to them, I think is super interesting gift that I learned early on from him on making sure that unless the person across the table from me was truly somebody that I thought was top quality, that this portfolio just didn't need that. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? If I can find it, I would say it's a company that's misunderstood, that has some sort of angle that matches the way I think is disrupting the world in some way or shape or form so that it has a good long lead time before its competitors catch up to it and therefore can expand market share and expand profit margins. Those are my fave. And how do you apply that love for that type of investment to a group of managers? It's the same thing. When I got into this job after managing money for 18 years, it was basically translating that skill set of stock picking and knowing whether a management team had the expertise to implement a strategy and had the vision. And it's exactly the same skills that I look for in a manager. In other words, it has to be somebody that really understands what they own and that they own companies. Yes, they own stocks. They need to trade the stocks. But they own companies in which they have to be capable of implementing the strategies. That's how I translate it. There are very few really consistently excellent stock pickers. There are very few consistently excellent bond investors, just like in venture and just like in buyout. The last 15 years have massively expanded the universe of funds and firms that weren't excellent. Not everyone can be excellent, even though everybody shows up as top tier in presentation and pitch deck. So I don't understand, (laughs) but not everybody is excellent. And you need to really find the excellent people that you trust, that their firm values are aligned with you. If their firm values aren't aligned, I mean, we're going to go through some tough times over the next decade. You really need managers that you feel are properly aligned with you. 
that have a clear objective. Otherwise, it's really tough to navigate those conversations. Performance aside, like at this point, that's the least of my issues. It's really, do they have what it takes to be flexible enough to understand that they're in a new environment? All right, on the last one for you, what are your biggest blind spots? My children would say my biggest blind spots are that I like to be efficient with my time and that perhaps instead of considering 20 options, I will only consider whatever they say are the top three options. So I force them to come up with options ahead of time and don't listen to the 20. My work children would say the same thing. (laughs) My other blind spot is while I try to look forward as much as I can, the reality is my investment experience is rooted in two very distinct periods of time of two very distinct monetary policy periods, two very distinct geopolitical periods. And so it's hard to not draw analogies. And so the reason why I like diversity on my team to be also generational is I need the young people on the team to be like, yeah, no. Like that's so dead and gone. Like that couldn't even happen again. I love when people tell me I am flat out wrong in my thinking and then walk me through their logic and open up a whole new way. Anna, thanks so much for sharing this update on your thoughts. Great to see you. Great to see you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. 